This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. Most killings are crimes of passion, right? I mean, most of the ones I cover are someone gets mad, someone gets angry, they do something awful. But that's not what this is. It was, it was startling to hear that he wasn't done and that I was the next person. It's hard to imagine that someone would want to kill you for doing your job. He just couldn't let it go. It was unfair the way they'd gone after him. He'd lost his job, his livelihood, health insurance for himself and his wife, all just for a few computer monitors, three to be exact. But the damage was done and he was planning revenge. His wife would later describe the warning signs How his anger went beyond anything that might be considered normal. How he once pulled a gun on a couple in a parking lot. How he killed cats because he didn't like them. How he threatened at times to kill her and himself. But this time, he meant business. He wasn't just making threats. He planned to kill the people who had brought him down, the ones who ruined him. He had a list of people, targets. He bought bolt cutters and a crossbow and told his wife about his plans. He put napalm in pickle jars, telling her he planned to use it to blow out his victim's stomach. He considered kidnapping his first victim, bringing him home, killing him, putting him in the freezer. This was someone planning over months and months to kill people and coming up with lists. And he wasn't done. He had a list. And I, based on everything I know, I think he would have attempted more. He would not have just gone away. He wasn't just going to stop. Tanya Iser is a reporter at WFAA in Dallas, Texas. She worked for 17 years as a newspaper reporter before making the jump to TV. I've covered crime for a long, long time, and I have to say this uh, (laughs) ranks right up there with one of the craziest stories I have ever covered. It's, it's, in fact, when I went back and reread my own stories, I, I don't want to say I'd forgotten things, but I had forgotten how just, unbelievable this case was. Just unbelievable. She remembers the morning she heard about the first murder. It was January 31st, 2013. I was uh, sitting in the newsroom at the Dallas Morning News, uh, drinking my coffee uh, one morning, and uh, I get a call from a lawyer who offices in Kaufman, and he said there's been a murder uh, in downtown, downtown Kaufman. And he said, I think it's a prosecutor. Uh, who was has been gunned down walking to the courthouse. Kaufman is the county seat of Kaufman County, Texas. It's a nice, quiet town just outside of Dallas. The Kaufman County Courthouse is a is not a big building. It's two floors, and I think there's a total of like four judges in that county. So it's a small, you know, it's a small county. It's not it's a small place, you know, out, just outside a big place. And it was just outside of this small courthouse the 57-year-old Kaufman County prosecutor, Mark Hassey, was gunned down in broad daylight. I mean, Mark Hassey is killed as he's walking from his car. He parked his car where he always parked his car. And he's just making that quick two-minute walk to the courthouse uh, when he's gunned down in broad daylight. And it's just unbelievable when you look back about what happened. The killer and his wife had gotten up early that January morning. 
They drove to an auto parts store and picked up a getaway car he'd bought a few days earlier. She drove the car to downtown Kaufman and parked near Hassie's usual spot. Her husband, the killer, wore a black Halloween mask, a black jacket, and a bulletproof vest. His wife later described him as, quote, happy, excited happy, nervous. When she asked her husband if Hassie had said anything, he told her he only said no, no, please, no. His wife would later describe him as happy, even cocky, as they watched a news conference later that night. He'd killed one of his enemies and gotten away with it, and he planned to kill more. The brazen nature of the crime, a shooting outside a courthouse, a county prosecutor murdered on his way to work, sent shockwaves through the town. People are just terrified. Who could have done this? And back at the paper, Tanya and her colleagues started digging into what they had. We started looking at what, what cases had Hassie been involved in. And Hassie had been involved in some prosecutions of some Aryan Brotherhood members. And I did a story about the speculation that maybe, you know, maybe the Aryan Brotherhood had had something to do with this. Those connections didn't seem to go anywhere, but one name did come up. There was some speculation early on that this guy named Eric Williams, that maybe Eric Williams had something to do with it. Eric Williams was this former justice of the peace that Hassie had helped prosecute um, Williams had stolen county computers, and there had been this really contentious trial the year before, and he had been convicted, and he had been disbarred. But it, it just didn't seem likely to me. I, I, I couldn't fathom that somebody who was um, a former lawyer and judge could do something like that. But who would be capable of the murder, putting on a mask and a vest and gunning a victim down in a parking lot on his way to work? The official investigation seemed to hit a wall. And then, and then, and then after a few weeks, it kind of died down. I don't, I don't want to say people moved, people moved on, but people kind of moved on. There was, you know, it was like, okay, wow, there was this crazy killing in Kaufman, and then coverage kind of died down. But the DA wasn't letting up, especially not the murder of one of its own. The DA comes out, Mike McClellan comes out, and he does this press conference. And he basically says, you know, whatever hole you're hiding in, Mr. Murderer, we're going to find you, we're going to catch you, you can't hide from us. And he's wearing his black hat, and he's, you know, standing tall Texan, you know, and he's surrounded by other law enforcement. And I remember thinking when I saw the press conference, man, he's really called out this killer. But despite the tone from the DA's office, the case seemed to lose steam. No leads, very little evidence, no suspects. And again, I hate to say we all kind of move on, but we all kind of... It felt like the Hassie case wasn't going to get solved. It really did. I mean, it felt like whoever had done this had gotten away with it. And then, just as Easter arrived in Texas and the Dallas suburbs, Tanya Eiserer got another phone call. And the caller um, says that the McClellans have been murdered. This time, it's the district attorney, Mike McClellan, and his wife, Cynthia. Him and his wife are gunned down on Easter in 2013 in their homes. I mean, it's just a brazen, terrifying, uh, brutal killing. Mike McClellan, 63 years old, had 16 gunshot wounds, and his wife, Cynthia, 65, had eight. And you know at that point, there's no way that these 
killings are unrelated. You, you know that whoever killed McClellan, the McCle- whoever killed the McClellans has to have killed Mark Hassie. At least that's the way it looked to a seasoned reporter like Tanya Iser, and she certainly wasn't alone. But the level of fear that that the killing of the McClellans generated is just, I, I can't even begin to um, downplay it. I mean, people were terrified, like, because it became who's next. But there's a link, a common thread between Mike McClellan and Mark Hassey. They had prosecuted Eric Williams. And I remember the prosecutor, one of the, I remember one of the special prosecutors told me, um, Bill Worski, who I've known for, had known before this case, and he told me, he always, he said something to me, and it stuck with me, and it stuck with me for years, and it's called Occam's Razor. And it's this concept that, this philosophical concept that the most obvious answer is the answer. If you have to make too many logical leaps on something, then it's not the answer. And the obvious answer was Eric Williams. And because they had prosecuted him and he was bitter and he was angry. But angry and bitter enough to kill his enemies? Police picked up the thread and paid a visit to Williams' house. A a Kaufman County investigator named Jolie Stewart and I believe a Texas Ranger go to um, Eric Williams' house and they convince him to let them let them search and I think I think initially it's consensual and then eventually they get a warrant but in this search they find this very very key piece of evidence by his computer they find a number that number turns out to be the number for the Crime Stoppers tip that he'd made only one only only one person who could have that number and he had made he made two calls to Crime Stoppers, or of their calls, or they were electronic. I forget now, but he made two reports to Crime Stoppers. One was after Hassey to try to throw investigators off the trail, and then the other one was after the McClellans when he this Crime Stoppers tipster confesses to the murders and makes some demands. So this number, a kind of unique identifier that Williams was given when he decided to call Crime Stoppers himself, not once but twice was found in his home by investigators. But they were able to identify this number and that led them back to this tip and that was a direct link. I mean, this is a direct link at that point. But that's not the only evidence linking Williams to the murders. Because right after that, they get a call from either the same day or the next day, but very soon they get a call from uh, a guy who a, was a member of the Texas National Guard with Eric Williams. And it turns out that he has rented a storage unit in his name for Eric Williams. Well, that storage unit is, um, that storage unit is gonna contain uh, all kinds of weaponry, um, a substance that's like napalm, uh, all kinds of uniforms, like law enforcement uniforms, you know, raid jackets, badges, um, this white Ford Crown Vic that we're gonna later find out is used in the killing of the McClellans. And they had also found the title to that white Ford Crown Vic during the search of Eric Williams's house 
So, but, but the key piece of evidence, the key piece of evidence that they're gonna find in the storage unit is this live round that, has, that they determine has cycled through the weapon that killed the McClellans. That's the key, that's the key right there. That, that's, that's a linchpin. It was enough to arrest Eric Williams. They initially charge him with terroristic threats, right? Because he's made some threats in this Crime Stoppers tip. And then a few days later, he gets charged with capital murder. A disgruntled, bitter former judge convicted of stealing computer monitors. Later, Eric's wife, Kim Williams, would share more evidence with investigators. So she eventually, to save her own, to save herself, agrees to cooperate with investigators. And she tells them that some items have been thrown in Lake Tawakany. And they they searched Lake Tawakany for, man, I don't know how long. And I knew they were searching it. And so they, they're about to give up. They're about to give up because they can't find it. They can't find it. They can't find it. But they go out one more time. And in that one more time, they find a mask, a cell phone, and a gun. That evidence is important because it backs up Kim's story. And because they had gone out to, after killing the McClellans, they had gone out to Lake Tawakany and they had disposed of evidence. Putting Eric Williams behind bars ended much of the fear that had been spreading through Kaufman County but it opened new doors and insight into the dark corners of Eric Williams' twisted mind. And we would find out later on that he, Eric Williams had a list. He had, he wanted to kill Early Wiley, who became the DA after McClellan was killed. They had had a conflict. She was on the list. Another judge um, named Ashworth was on the list. He, he had a kill list. And it, and it, you know, I heard about it before the trial, and of course it all came out during the trial. Uh, another thing that came out during the trial was that he was looking up members of the media, and I was one of them. Now, do I really think that, that Eric Williams was gonna come kill me? No, not really. But it's kind of terrifying to know that a man who did something like that is looking you up. But he was very clearly checking out the people who were doing stories on him. And as the Eric Williams trial got underway in December 2014, the courtroom heard more about how the murders took place, how he was able to get inside the McClellan's house. He dresses up as a cop. And my recollection is he dresses up as a sheriff's officer. Badge, the whole nine yards. That's why he uses the the white Ford Crown Vic, because he's banking that Cynthia will open the door for law enforcement. That's how he's able to, 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 you know, get them to lower their fears. Eric's wife, Kim, told jurors her husband told her he had to shoot Cynthia McClellan an extra time because she was still moaning. He said he shot her because she was a witness. Collateral damage, said Kim Williams, referring to what her husband told her. Jurors also heard about Eric Williams' history of violence and threats. I heard him say, I'm just going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. Killing his wife, his kids, I'm gonna burn his house down, stab him. He said, well, I have a gun, and, I, and he just did this. Reached behind him like Yeah, like this, and he said, I have a gun, and if you walk away, I'll use it, I have nothing to lose. And when you said that, Ms. Gray, what did you, 
how did you feel? I was maybe shocked, maybe scared. The trial lasted two weeks, and in the end, Eric Williams was found guilty. You couldn't sit through that trial and listen to the overwhelming evidence and not believe that he did it. That, and again, the, 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 this really key piece of evidence is this live round that's found in the storage locker. Because that round had cycled through the weapon that killed the McClellans. So there's no way that in that, that that's a just a just a key piece of evidence. It's a key piece of physical evidence. This is not it, this was not in my mind this is not a circumstantial case. During the penalty phase of the trial as jurors considered the death penalty for Eric Williams, his wife Kim took the stand. She drove the car, waited outside, was with her husband for all three murders, a willing accomplice, but she testified he was a dangerous man clearly meant to convince jurors that he should be sentenced to death. Today, Eric Williams' estranged wife, Kim, painted a grim picture for the jury. She described the convicted killer as an excited and happy man after carrying out the murders. He even went out for a steak dinner to celebrate. And she said he had a hit list that indicated he was not finished yet. State will call Kim Williams. Kim Williams, bring her out, please. He was mad at Mark Hassey. He was mad at uh, Mr. McClellan. She said he drank heavily, talked of killing Hassey and Mike McClelland. It soon became more than talk. He called Hassey's daytime murder in downtown Kaufman his tombstone plot. She said he wasn't done killing the people he felt had crossed him. He wanted to kill his former boss, a state district judge. He wanted to kill the current Kaufman district attorney. Why are you here testifying against your husband? Because those families deserve it. They, they've had a terrible, terrible loss. In closing arguments, prosecutors told jurors that only the death sentence would put a stop to Eric Williams. Defense attorneys agreed with prosecutors' claims that Eric Williams' murder spree was prompted by an earlier prosecution for theft. But they argued that the earlier case never should have gone to court. What if even one person back then had been wise enough, gracious enough to say, eh, three computers, let's take a, take a deep breath. Let's take a moment. Let's ask ourselves, is it really right to destroy a man's life over three computers? Defense attorneys framed the case for stealing three county computer monitors as a political vendetta that cost Williams his job and his identity. That was a ridiculous prosecution. I mean, he should never have been brought to court for what they were saying that he did. Eric always did positive things for the county. Defense attorneys also appealed to jurors' religious beliefs, calling jail Bible study leaders. And he can be an example to other inmates. What drove these killings was revenge. He, he was a vengeful man. He was angry. They had, they had prosecuted him. He had lost his livelihood, and he was going to get back at them. There's a, a level of pathology. I mean, th this was, these were premeditated crimes. Think about the level of premeditation that has to go into everything that happens here buying cars in ways that you can try to conceal who owns them, getting your friend to rent a storage locker for you. I mean, all these things that he did, I mean, the, 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 the level of depravity and, pathol and, and just premeditation in this is, is astounding. I've never seen anything like it.
In the end, all 12 jurors agreed that Eric Williams should be sentenced to death. For a community paralyzed by fear, Eric Williams' sentence came with relief and release. That trial lasted just two weeks, but people in Kaufman have lived through nearly two years of terror. One of the most emotional parts of the day really was the victim impact statements that McClellan's children, among those who took the stand. It's now the duty of this court to assess your punishment. He did not move. He did not show emotion. Eric Williams' head was down as his sentence was read. The is ordered by this court to carry out the sentence of death. But family and friends of his victims showed plenty of emotion after. I wish you could look me in the eye right now, but you can't. You're a sorry SOB, and we hope you rot. These families, though, in the courtroom will forever be without their loved ones. Eric Williams took that from them. A man the judge compared to Manson and Dahmer. In trial, we heard how Eric Williams celebrated his murders with a cookout. Steak, to be exact. At the very end, a distraught son, J.R. McClelland, said this. Tonight, while you're eating bologna sandwich, I'm going to have steaks. Ribeyes, baked potatoes. Fat glass of sweet tea. We don't know if these are tears of sadness, of joy, or maybe just relief, but they are emotions brought by one man, the man who shows nothing now. I don't I think he was surprised by the conviction. I do. And he is a very dangerous man. He is a very dangerous man. I mean he's someone who has no empathy, no moral compass, and he is dangerous. But it's, it's, it's crazy to think that this man's a lawyer, a former law officer, served in, you know, in a branch of the, of the military. He's in the Texas National Guard. And you're just like, wow. For now, Eric Williams sits on death row in Texas, and his lawyers have appealed without success. Convicted murderer Eric Williams is heading back to death row. Today, a judge denied his motion for a retrial. Williams' lawyers argue that his brain is broken and atrophied. They say they couldn't adequately defend Williams because they couldn't get brain scans done before the trial ended. There's something wrong with the brain of a person that acts like this, that has the education and the background like this. Eric's brain is atrophied, it's shrunken, it's broken. But even their experts did not agree. One who examined the scans found nothing wrong with Williams's brain. The other expert concluded there were abnormalities. Special Prosecutor Bill Worski says the facts of the crime show there's nothing wrong with Williams's brain. These were planned murders. He planned them for over a year. He used various aliases. He alibied, he researched his victims. Something's wrong, but it's with his mind and his heart. His brain's not broken. Uh, his mind and his heart are dark and evil. But the only thing wrong with Eric Williams is he's a psychopath. I'd like to uh, be there when when he when this case reaches its finality, because it's it's one that I you know can truly say I covered from beginning to end. I mean, and the end has not come yet. The end is when um, he is put to death. Hi, it's Will Johnson. I'm here with Spencer Brudick for True Crime Chronicles. Spencer probably brings up a lot of questions. This case was, you know, huge news in the Dallas area, in Kaufman County. Uh, and, and like I said, Eric Williams sits on death row. Not sure if there are more appeals, but you know how these things can go on and on for many years. 
I think the first thing I'd like to get some more clarity on is Eric Williams' wife, Kim, because she is in prison currently, is she not? Yeah, she was sentenced to 40 years, basically a life sentence for her. Um, And that was part of a plea deal. She did, you know, testify and what she said, I think, helped seal the deal in terms of his conviction and being sent to death row. And and then the original case that um, his victims actually tried him, right? What what was the deal with that? He stole some... So that was three. I mentioned at the very beginning, it was three computer monitors. And, you know, that's an interesting part of this whole story is that in the defense, you know, you heard some testimony even in the in the trial regarding these murders that they brought it up, you know, and, and it was right. suggested that they were very aggressive in going after... Eric Williams for those three computer monitors. I don't have all of the details on that original case. It doesn't matter at this point. He did what he did, and it was truly horrific. It's amazing to me that they framed his defense. They kind of created that argument that if these people wouldn't have aggressively pursued him for the stolen computers, that he wouldn't have murdered them. And that's a huge logical leap. Yeah, I don't know if, I mean, that was a soundbite within the story, and obviously the trial went on for two weeks, so a lot was said, but it raised my eyebrow, too, in the sense that it seemed like a, an odd argument to be making uh, that, you know, th- these things shouldn't have happened, you know, that that original conviction for three computer monitors shouldn't have happened. He lost his job, lost his law license, I believe was on probation, didn't see jail time for that. You know, you could argue and discuss what was going on with that original trial. Here's a justice of the peace who all of a sudden is out of the job. And, you know, I don't know whether, I I don't know what his defense was, whether he said, you know, he meant to walk off with three computer monitors or he wasn't stealing them. Again, it, it really doesn't matter. It is an important aspect of the story because that is how he chose his victims. I mean, that is what really, you know, made him, for all we can tell, snap. But there was a history of violence, and we brought about, we, you know, at least threats and violence that seemed to exist in his life. Well, yeah, and, and I think that that perfectly segues into just the idea of him having a hit list and this storage unit with, you know, what is described as napalm. Did, was there any more clarity into what he was planning? I mean, the, the sheer brutality of the way that he did murder, you know, shooting people a dozen times, it's a lot of rage there. But then on top of that, he has this unit with, you know, napalm and all these other, you know, devices. What's the deal with that? Do you know anything more about that? Well, I I can just tell you what we know what he ended up doing. I think that he had other plans in mind. He was so angry and so conniving and plotting and, you know, planning these horrible attacks that ended up being, I mean, the McClellan murders and the Marcassi murder, all of them are, you know, shocking for anyone to have carried out. Uh, There were other elements, right, that that we mentioned in the story that he didn't necessarily go through with. Um, But, you know, he went to the McClellan's home, as we make clear, in this police uniform with a a badge. I mean, it's crazy. crazy. And Tanya Iser makes that very clear. I mean, she's been reporting on crime and news in the Dallas area for a really long time, first as a newspaper reporter and then as a TV reporter, and she's seen a lot, uh, but this one sticks with her. As as a veteran investigative reporter, this case was so shocking and brutal, it makes sense why it would stick with her. 
And it goes without saying, but I will mention that anytime you have a story like this where you have somebody who is involved in the legal system, a lawyer, or in this case, a justice of the peace, who snaps and goes the other direction and is involved in murder, it's just, you almost can't believe it. Like, how is this person even on the right side of things to begin with? Well, Will, um, you know, thank you so much for bringing us the story. And also a big shout out to Tanya Iser for covering this uh, for for several years and, and really you know, spending a lot of time bringing us the story and the details of it. Yeah. And she told me that she, you know, when she covered the trial of Eric Williams, it was literally her first couple of weeks of being a TV reporter. So it was a pressure cooker uh, as she made that jump to TV. And she's been covering it all these years, including the most recent appeals that we heard about. So Spencer, uh, where can people go to learn more about True Crime Chronicles, more about Vault Studios? I know you're uh, busy on social media, asking a lot of questions, interacting with listeners and that kind of thing. Yes, we have a group called Inside the Crime Vault on Facebook. It's coming up on 5,000 members. We have some lively discussions and uh, we're constantly interacting with the folks that are in there. So if you like true crime, if you like uh, True Crime Chronicles and Vault Studios Productions, I highly encourage you to join that group to uh, talk true crime with other like-minded individuals. All right. And Spencer, you are working on the story for next week. Can you give us a sneak peek? Yes. It's about a, a real estate agent that disappears and the details surrounding her disappearance are really bizarre. All right. We'll be back next week with that case. Thanks, Spencer. Thanks, listeners. We will talk then. <laughs>